Do your homework. Did you do your homework? Who wasn't here last week? Put your hands up. That's all right, then you're let off. (laughs) We will get to your homework later on. (laughs) Last week, we laid some foundations. We laid lots of foundations, in fact, last week. We labored the fact that we laid foundations last week. And we touched on the character of God a little bit, and we saw his insatiable desire to relate to humanity. He's obsessed with relating to humanity. And we recognized that as a people, we surround our important relationships with words and ceremonies like marriage. That's an important relationship, isn't it? And therefore we make a special, we go out of our way and we make a special attempt and we we embrace it and we surround it with words and ceremony. And that this is true of Father God, that he does this. That he commits to us within covenant relationships. He's not, you know, he's not one of these people who just likes loose relationships. He is determined within his relationship structure with us. And the Bible is a history of such relationships with his creation and with his people. And as we saw last week, sadly, we always screw up. Time and time and time again, people have always let God down and broken their promises and not kept their part of the bargain. And we saw that we are undoubtedly the weakest link. And therefore today, we're going to see how an ever-loving God sorted out that weakest link. As Christians, we're familiar with what we call the Easter story, where without a bunny or a chocolate egg in sight, Jesus hung on a cross. He suffered and died in our place. He was a substitute. The wrath of God was poured out on him and Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and for the sins of the world. My question this morning is, is that what you believe? Is that what you believe? No, no, it's not. It can be. It can be. I don't want to. I don't want to put you on the spot, Vince. I don't want to put you on the spot. You want to say yes, Vince? You're okay. Vince says yes. Is that what you believe about the cross? Because it's what the vast majority of Christians believe about the cross today. Although the Orthodox Church don't, but we'll forget them for the minute. Okay. So you may be surprised to hear that it was not the view held by the early church fathers or the Christian church for its first 1,100 years. Didn't believe that. Didn't believe that at all. We believe it. Most of us believe it. We were taught that. We were brought up on that. And yet the church for 1,100 years did not believe it. From the death of Jesus for the next 1,000 years, there was predominantly a different view of atonement. 
Atonement means to bring two parties back into relationship with one another. That's why people play with the word and call it at one moment. If that helps you, fine. Right? It's bringing the relationship back together. So we're talking here about the reconciliation of God and mankind through Jesus Christ. In other, in other words, what happened at the cross. So the early view, the church that the early church, the view that the early church accepted, we now, our theologians, call Christ the victor. Okay? That was the view, which I'm going to explain in a minute, that the early church understood about the cross. And in essence, it goes something like this. That in the beginning, God gave Adam and Eve authority. But the devil tricked them out of it. And therefore, the devil became the God of this world. Jesus, as another Adam, as a sinless human being, went through trials and temptations, was put to death. But he triumphed, came out of the grave, rose from the dead, brought with him all the captives and the keys and the authority and gave it all back to humankind. Right? Now that, in a nutshell, is the basic view of the cross that was held by the early church fathers. Do you see any sign of wrath there or punishment? what one of the early church fathers said the work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage sin death and the devil then during the 1100s Anselm who was the Bishop of Canterbury at the time got thinking and promoted a new theory of what happened at the cross and his thinking moved the focus away from getting back humanity's authority and instead he placed an emphasis on the view that human sin had dishonored God. And this was referred to as the satisfaction theory. And it said that Jesus came to die for sin to satisfy God's requirement for justice, to pay back the debt of sin because God is a just God. Okay? So he took this step away from what the early church fathers believed and came up with this package. Now in the 1500s, the reformers, particularly a chap called John Calvin, took this thinking of Anselm's and, and, and developed it even further. And Calvin said that sin dishonored God and deserved to be punished. Humans deserved punishment because of their sin, but instead God the Father placed the judgment and the punishment upon Jesus, who stood in our place, took the punishment so we could go free. And Calvin was on a roll when he, when he was thinking this, so he decided to push it even further, and he taught something called limited atonement, right? Which was that Jesus took the punishment for believers only, the elect, and not all of humanity. Now this one didn't catch on as well, partly because it actually was contrary to Scripture, because it says in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, 
My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Of the whole world. So, over the centuries, the view of what happened at the cross has changed. And it's changed quite radically. Because to the early church, the cross was not so much a rational, systematic theory. It was more a drama. It was more a passion story of God triumphing over the powers and liberating us from the bondage of sin. All of this brings us to our homework question. Some of you may not even be able to remember the homework question, never mind having done it. At the cross, therefore, was sin forgiven or punished? And as I said to the group last night, depending on your answer will depend on your age. Okay? Because up to the year AD 1100, you would say forgiven. And after AD 1100, believers would increasingly say that sin was punished at the cross. And this change, this shift away from forgiveness to punishment was the part of the influence that Calvin brought into the teaching within mainly, mainly the Western church, our neck of the woods. Calvin introduced the concept of a courtroom scene with an angry God as judge demanding payment for the debt of sin. And that Jesus steps into this courtroom as a perfect man to die in our place for our sins. This whole legal framework was invented by John Calvin, who had a legal background. So he saw things through his, the lens of his experience, which we all do which we all do. This teaching came to be known as penal substitution, and it is the teaching which is popular. Many of the people whose books you read, many of the people whose tapes that you listen to, will believe in penal substitution. John Piper, penal substitution, big time. It is widely accepted today but it has led to the widespread acceptance that if sin has to be punished, that God must be angry. <coughs> angry that his law is being violated. And that humanity's sinful defiance has built up this great load of stuff to be dealt with, that the wrath of God has been building up, which eventually was poured out on the cross on Jesus, who suffered in our place. I want to ask, what view of Father God does this present? This, this to me presents a, a very negative view of Father God, a view which is contrary to a lot of what the church is coming into and has been coming into for the last 10, 15 years. You're a good, good father. I found this cracking quote from John Calvin. John Calvin said, Jesus loves us, but God the Father finds us obnoxious. 
do you think that John Calvin had daddy issues? <laughs> As I said to the group behind, I think he needed a sozo. So as a central belief of what happened at the cross, the Christ the victor and the penal substitution views are difficult to reconcile. The Christ the victor view says that at Calvary, it is Satan who wants Jesus dead. It's Satan that has schemed. It's Satan that has, that has manipulated history and got him onto that cross and thinks, this is it. The penal substitute view says that at Calvary, it's God that demands that Jesus needs to die. Christ the victor view says that we're saved from sin, death, and the devil. In penal substitute, we're saved from the wrath of God. God's the one that we have to watch out for now. As we saw last week, in the covenant relationships, God the Father has always been on one side of the covenant. And on the other side, there's been people like Moses and Israel or Abraham or Noah. And as I say, as we saw, the human side could never, ever keep their side of the agreement. In fact, they were fearful of their relationship with God to the degree that they wanted to have rules rather than relationship. And as soon as they made that mistake of saying, that, just give us the rules and we'll stick to them, when they couldn't stick to them, and they were bound in this covenant agreement with God where God was put in the position he never wanted to be in, which was to punish people who did not stick to the rules, then they were in trouble. They were in trouble. But under the new covenant, when Jesus became human... He stood on one side of the covenant as God's, the Father's, covenant partner. And as we know with Jesus, he keeps everything perfectly. And the new covenant is not between the church and God, like the old one was between Israel and God. This new covenant is between God the Father and God the Son. And it was the death of Jesus which has established this new covenant his shed blood sealed a new deal he created a new covenant of forgiveness Jesus the sacrificial lamb seals this new covenant and as the high priest he takes his own blood into the heavenly tabernacle and he places it on the mercy seat providing forgiveness for all of humanity So, with God on both sides of the covenant, he has done everything he can to reconcile the world to himself. Because the cross was not about the wrath of God, despite what you may have been brought up to believe. It was nothing to do with the wrath of God. In fact, as you look in the, in the Bible and you see God taking action, which sometimes we go, why did he do that? You know, well, we, perhaps we don't. You know, look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at, the, look at the flood where he wiped out humanity except for a small family. You won't read anywhere that the wrath of God was involved in those actions. Because they were, it wasn't. 
If you want to know what makes God wrathful, you have to go to Exodus 20, right, where it says what makes God wrathful is neglecting widows and orphans. Now that really ticks him off. You'll find that the wrath of God is all around the law. And once the law has been dealt with, there is no wrath left. So the cross was not about the wrath of God. And the Father was not at odds with the Son, but was in partnership with him. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. God himself is in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself. The father didn't abandon the son or abuse the son with his wrath. uh, Colossians 2 verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. They were all in it together. The Godhead was all involved in what was happening. So now with this new covenant in place, humanity is either in Christ or in Adam. In Christ we receive all the blessings of the new covenant, which are mentioned in Ephesians 1 verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The new covenant is an inward covenant where God puts a new heart and a new spirit in us and he makes us, as Peter tells us, partakers of the divine nature. So, you might say, what about Psalm 22? What about, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eh? That doesn't sound like partnership to me. Well, it's true. Jesus quoted the first line of Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm from the cross. Now, this is a point in case where it highlights how we read the Bible and how we understand the Bible. And as I labor time and time again, when you read the Bible, you have to read the Bible and say, who wrote it? Who was it written to? What were the circumstances? How would the person who it was written to have understood it in their day in that context? Not, what does it mean to me today, 2,000 years later? What what do I interpret it? You have to read it in its context and understand it. Now, to the Jews of his day... To quote one line of a psalm was to quote the entire psalm. That's the way they did it. It's not the way we do it, but that's the way. It was a short, kind of a shorthand. So when reading the complete psalm, it's not about separation between father and son. In fact, the psalm leads to the opposite conclusion. And the early believers, when they read this, they weren't troubled by it. They didn't think, oh, we've got a little theological dilemma here. What does this mean? They, to them, it fitted in quite nicely with the Christ the victor and God being part of the whole show. They didn't think there was a clash. It's only people like us who are culturally removed from their circumstances 
who look at it and think, well, that looks like they had a bit of a problem between them there, doesn't it? It looks like at that point in time, the wrath of God came down on Jesus and he was so kind of separated because God cannot look upon sin. Where do we get all this rubbish from? Where do we get it from that God cannot look upon sin? Comes, where does it come from? Habakkuk. It wasn't, it wasn't even God saying it, it was somebody else saying it, and God, it was somebody proposing something to God which wasn't true, and yet we wrench it out of its setting, and then we say, now God cannot look upon sin. Rubbish, God can look upon sin, and looks upon sin all the time. So it was nothing to do with him quoting the psalm because the wrath of God had hit him and he was blotted out. There was some kind of separation between him and God. That never happened. Yet we believe that it happened because we've been taught that it happened. So, as you can probably tell from all this, I lean toward the Christ, the victor, understanding of the atonement, right? You can be penal substitution people if you want to be. But, to kind of show you the starkness of what, what we've been taught and what the early fathers believed was true, this is what Christ the victor believes that Jesus did not die in our place as a substitute. That Jesus did not pay the penalty for our sin and that Jesus did not receive the wrath of God. Now that, those some of the things would rattle a few crates. Some people think, well hang on, I believe those things. I believe that he died in our place as a substitute. Many say and believe that Jesus died so that we don't have to. They believe he died as a substitution in our, in our place as a substitute. That is wrong. He did not. When he died, we died with him. Right? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live shouldn't live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We are united with him in his death. Instead of substitution, it is identification. Okay? And there is a development of understanding, almost layers of revelation that we have to come into. Most of us know Jesus died. People on the streets outside, a lot of them would agree with you that there was a time in history when a man called Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross, right? But then you take that next step where the revelation of God hits your heart and you realize that Jesus died for me. This historical event suddenly becomes personal and it transforms you. It, tr it transforms you who you are as you actually, as God enters you in a new way. And many, many Christians live their lives at that level and I'm not knocking it, but there is a deeper level to go. There is another level, which is, I died with him. Yeah. The identification. Yeah. We died with him, and we are therefore raised with him into new life as a new creation. So Jesus didn't take our place. It was, it was quite, I must tell you this, it was quite ironic. We, I preached this last night, and then I finished, and then we sang a song. 
which Lynn had, Lynn had written years ago. And as she was singing it, she suddenly started to smile as she realized that the lyrics of the song were all about Jesus dying in our place. It's amazing what theology you sing. And it's amazing what wrong theology you sing. So Jesus did not take our place, but we died with him through identification. That's why it says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus didn't die so we wouldn't have to. He died so we could die and be raised with him to new life. So what happened at the cross was the establishment of a new covenant of forgiveness. Okay? And the removal of the old covenant and the old system. Because while under the old covenant, people were either blessed or cursed, depending on their performance. In the new covenant, we are blessed. Because we don't have to do anything. We are blessed because of what Christ did for us. And we cannot be cursed. We cannot be cursed under the new covenant because there is no curse, there's only forgiveness. Sadly, many Christians still mix their covenants together and they're still living performance-orientated lives. Sometimes for the best reasons. Sometimes they are so grateful to God of what he's done that they therefore want to perform for him. But sometimes you cross that edge and it's performance orientated, it's almost as though you're driven. Some people still believe in the courtroom scene and the angry God and think, I don't want to get the wrong side of him. I don't want to get the wrong side of God. I don't want to see him hit the smite button on his computer. You know. And therefore I am going to work my little tail off to keep him happy. Performance orientated. In the new covenant, the rea reality is we do good works because we are new creations. But there's a question that needs to be asked and answered. And that question is, how can a God who forgives sin be righteous? Has he, over the years, become soft like a granddad? and just pats them on the head and says, boys will be boys. You know, just let them run riots. Just, yeah, it's only sin. You know. Is it a touch of that? God did not simply decide to forgive people. He created a new covenant of forgiveness. And this covenant was necessary so that forgiveness of sin would not violate God's identity, which is just. He is a just God. He is a righteous God. He could not violate his character. So he created a covenant which included the forgiveness of sin. And God's new covenant of forgiveness is also linked with the new creation, which exchanges our sinful identity for the divine nature 
So it's not just forgiveness, but it's also empowerment for righteousness. So by forgiving, God was not overlooking or disobeying the law. He created a new law in the new covenant that allowed for forgiveness. And this is important to grasp. Because if God tries to apply the old covenant to us, he would be unrighteous. Because we are no longer under old covenant laws. So that's why there's no wrath anymore. There is no wrath. Wrath went out with the law which was fulfilled, right? Now, I know some of you read your Bible and think that there's still things to happen where there's a bit of wrath knocking about, right? right? But if you remember, I don't believe that, you see, because I believe that a lot of the stuff that's written in the Bible came to an end in AD 70 when the temple was demolished, right? And that, and that was the end, and that's the end of the Old Covenant. See, the New Covenant came in with Jesus' death but the Old Covenant didn't go out then. The Old Covenant didn't go out until the end of the, uh, the temple was destroyed in 70. So for about 40 years, give or take a few years, both were in, act in activity. And a lot of the things that we read in Scripture about the church struggling with this and the church struggling with that is because they were walking out their identity in an in trying to establish what it was like living in the New Covenant. And yet the environment was still, the background was still Old Covenant. Until the temple was destroyed in AD 70, that was the end. There's no more wrath of God since AD 70. There will be no more wrath of God. Right? You don't have to look over your shoulder. The truth is that God lives inside the covenant that he establishes. And he will be faithful to it because he is righteous and always operates within the covenant that he is in. We saw this last week. That the covenant that he created or wanted to create with the people of Israel and said, I want to give you this, 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 this grand covenant. It's all based on relationship. And they said, no way. Fear. Fearful. Let's have a kinship covenant. And that immediately placed him in a position that he didn't want to be in. But he had to live within the covenant that was created. And therefore he had to punish them when he didn't really want to punish them, but he punished them when they did not fulfill what the covenant was all about. So, I hope this has rattled a few cages and, and challenged a few thoughts and made you think a little bit about what you believe and why you believe and realize, because we're all born at a certain time, that we are born into a culture, we're born into a period where the influence comes from the culture around us. But that may not necessarily be what God is all about. We have to read scripture from the position of where scripture was written rather than our culture. So I want to finish with a quote by somebody called Derek Flood that embodies the passion and drama of the cross. Jesus reveals to us who God has always been. God has always suffered with those who suffer. God has always intimately known our condition. God has always been close to the brokenhearted. The cross does not change God at all, but it demonstrates very vividly who God is and always was.
it shows us his shocking nearness, his scandalous love for us. It is a window to heaven that gives us a glimpse of God's radical love, sacrificing for us and conquering death. It is a vision of grace in action. If you want to know what God is like, then look at the human Jesus. Watch him as he kneels beside the empty faces and touches the broken. Watch as he himself is broken. See the man dragging a half-ton cross through spit and mud and stick your fingers in the scars on his hands. This is what God is like. God was on that cross. Amen.